Welcome to the Renew Theology Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. We're two millennial women who enjoy discussing God's Word and how it applies to our lives. We believe in seeking to be rooted and established in the Word and allowing its truth to penetrate every area of our lives. Welcome to this week's episode of Renewed Theology. Tonight, we are talking about um, the parable of the prodigal son, um, as it's very commonly known, um, as well as the two parables that come before it, the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep, and how the culture of the Middle East influences this story in a way that us, with our Western mindset, are going to very easily miss and and how those cultural influences make a huge difference to the nuances of the story and and how it actually plays out. Um, This story is pretty meaningful to me. Um, I learned about it, well, the differences we'll share back when I was in university um, with one of my professors, he went through it and it just really stuck with me and and teaches about repentance. Um, So we're going to dive right in. Okay, so we're going to read, I'm going to do a quick little synopsis of the two parables before in Luke 15. I'm just go through the main points of the story. So the first one is the parable of the lost sheep. So Jesus here is talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law because they're complaining about him being with sinful people. And he tells them the story um, about the man who has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost. And so he leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one. And then he finds it. He's all joyful, carries it back on its shoulders. He calls his friends, his neighbors, um, telling them to rejoice. And then he says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and turns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Um, so the important points here are that Jesus is the one who does, or sorry, not Jesus, <laughs> is that the shepherd is the one who moves toward finding the lost sheep and the shepherd is the one that carries it home. Um, the sh- all the sheep could have done in that circumstance was bleat, like like make noise for being lost. And the shepherd is the one who does the work of bringing it back and rejoices and, and throws a party. And that um, the point of repenting here, the sheep did nothing. And the second parable um, of the lost coin has a woman here, which the woman and the shepherd are the same person. Um, and the woman has 10 silver coins. So not animals now, it's silver coins. And each coin represented about a day's wages. And she loses one. Well, she's obviously been entrusted with this and she knows it's obviously in the house. So she lights a lamp and sweeps up the house and searches very carefully. When she finds it, she calls in her neighbors and her friends and, and says, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. Um, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Again, the coin did nothing. The coin got lost and the coin got found. Like it said, The point saying here is that the person is a coin. The coin did nothing. The person who repents also has a very small part to play. Um, and then it goes into the parable of the lost son, often called the, the parable of the prodigal son. The point that Emily and I would like to make going forward is that the story is about the father, not the son. Emily, do you want to walk through the parable of the lost son for us? Sure. So I think a lot of us are really familiar with this story. So essentially, there's a father and he has two sons, um, an older and a younger son. 
and the younger son goes to his father and says, okay, I want my part of the inheritance that I know is coming to me. Um, the father grants him this wish and the son, um, leaves his, um, his father and his country and he goes and wastes all of his inheritance on reckless living. Um, he is destitute and so he ends up taking a very demeaning and degrading job, uh, feeding pigs. But then he comes to his senses and he says, okay, my father's servants are treated so much better than this. And so I'm going to go home. I'm going to ask my father if I can be a servant. And that's how I'm going to fix the mess I'm in right now. But then, of course, as we all know, on his way home, his father sees him coming, runs out to greet him and says, you know, you're my son again. And he says, okay, like make me a servant. And the father refuses to do this and says, no, you're my son. And the father goes to great lengths to celebrate the return of his son. Um, and then of course the story ends on a bit of a sour note when the older son is upset about how his father is treating the younger son. And he protests this and the father says, you know, this isn't the right response that you have. We should be celebrating your younger brother because he he was lost and now he's found and he's he's come back and that's pretty much how the story ends and so this is a story that I am very familiar with you know I heard it lots growing up in the church but it still always kind of left me with some question marks in my mind so we're gonna walk through it today and just pick out some of the details that maybe you've thought of or maybe you haven't and we're gonna see what we can learn from this story today So the first thing to note here is that Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who in the story, their character is the oldest son who has stayed with his father, followed his laws, done his work, um, and is angry about the father having the youngest son come back. So the youngest son comes to his father and says, I want my share of your estate now before you die. This is basically giving the middle finger to his dad and saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my money that I would get when you were dead. Like, this is an extremely disrespectful um, thing to say. Um, In fact, in the Old Testament law, you would be within your rights to, like, stone your son for this much rebellion um, and that much disrespect that's coming through. But his father says, okay, yeah, here you go. Um, So he sells off the land and and moves away quite quickly, probably to avoid the ridicule um, and scorn from the whole community who finds out what happens. I think it's really interesting, too, that it's the youngest son who demands his inheritance because it would have been the older son who actually is entitled to more of an inheritance. So in that culture, the oldest son, I believe, got two shares of the father's inheritance and then the rest of the sons got one share. So as the oldest son, you actually had more responsibility. You had a larger inheritance, but you also had a larger responsibility to sort of carry on the family inheritance and um, to preserve the family land and all that sort of thing. And so the way this actually would have worked out if you had two sons is that the older son would have had two thirds of the inheritance while the younger son had one third. So this younger son is already not really in a position to be demanding his inheritance. Aside from the fact that it's disrespectful, he's also the youngest son and is less entitled to an inheritance than his older brother. So he's already sort of in a position of being the underdog, if you will, uh, in this situation. Which I can see where he would be like, there's nothing for me here. I'm going to be under my older brother's thumb for my whole life. Like, 
better get out while the getting's good and see what I can do on my own. Yeah. Like, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also interesting that in him going away, that's also a slap in the face. I don't think he was just going away to try new things. You know, in, in today's society, in North American society, you you graduate high school and you move away. That's what you do. And it's seen as a rite of passage for us because that's our chance to spread our wings and try out our independence and explore the world for ourselves. But in that culture, it would have been seen as very rebellious because it was very, very important to the Israelites that they preserve the land that they had been given. When they had left Egypt and been given the promised land. And it was very, very, very important to them to hang on to the land that God had given them. And so in leaving the family property, the youngest son was not only um, rebelling against his father, but he was shirking his responsibility to the whole family to um, safeguard and protect the land that, that was theirs. And also he's moving to distant lands. Like, he's not staying in Israel. And people who move away from Israel to distant lands, like, that's not good. <laughs> like, think of the, the ridicule and the hardship that comes to um, Naomi and her husband and their two kids when they go to Moab. Like, this is bad. <laughs> like, you shouldn't do this. Like, that's really an affront to the as the Jewish community he's with. So it says here that he's wasted all his money on wild living. So it's it's not saying it, it doesn't we don't it doesn't say that he's wasting his money with prostitutes. It just says that he wastes his money on wild living. So it's not that he's like sinning per se. He's just not being wise. He's just being dumb with his stuff. Yeah, it's not like any specific sins are listed in terms of like these are the illegal things he did with his money or these are the sinful things he did with his money. He's just shown to be very foolish. And that'll be important later, so keep it in mind. Something that really struck me here is how he, you know, he wastes all his money and he realizes like, hey, I'm going to go hungry unless I do something about it. And so what he does is he hires himself out. And so the irony here is something I noticed in that he goes from being someone of status. He went from being the youngest son of a father who had household servants, who had an estate, to now being a hired servant himself. He had everything he needed in life and he squandered it. And now he is becoming the lowest of society, right? So he was doing very well and he has now become someone who is serving others for his livelihood. And he's basically the lowest of the low. Like he's working with pigs. Like if there's any animal that is anathema, like like awful and horrible and sinful to Jewish people it's pigs and he's living with them and eating their food like that's that's not only ritual unclean uncleanness like that's terrible yeah it was very derogatory yeah not so good and then in addition to that he was even he was in such a state of desperation and hunger that he actually was longing to eat the pig's food and so I think that that is just, that's a detail in there that is maybe lost on us culturally when, you know, like, I'm not Jewish, so I eat pork, you know? My husband loves bacon. Like, pigs are not seen in the same way in North America that they are in the Middle East. And so 
The fact that he was longing to eat the pig's food is just a detail that points to the state of desperation he was in at this point. At this point in the story, we see the son make a decision. He looks at a situation and he goes, okay, there are so many servants at my father's house who are better off than I am. So I'm going to apologize and go back to my father. But it's important to note here that his attitude is not one of repentance. He has not said, okay, I messed up. Hopefully my father will take me back. He says, I'm starving. I have no food. I need food to live. It's a basic necessity. And my I know my father has food. I know how his servants are treated because I've seen that myself. So I'm going to go ask him to hire me on as a servant. So I think it's just important to remember here that this attitude is not of repentance, but he is motivated by his needs, his hunger. Um, now, some other important things to note here is that we in the modern world have read this as him repenting. The phrase at the beginning of verse 17 um, says, when he finally came to his senses, it's like you realize what you're doing, like a little shock. Um, It's not like he's like comes to his senses and realizes he's sorry and that he shouldn't have done it. At this point, he's trying to fix it. So he can't really, he, he is in all ways of the word, a prodigal, which um, I don't think we talked about the definition, but The definition of the prodigal is wastefully or recklessly extravagant, giving or yielding profusely, lavish, squandering, spendthrift, wanton. Like, he's not a good dude. And and he can't go back to his father like this, number one, because he basically slapped him in the face, told him he wished he was dead, took his money and ran and went to a foreign land. Like, he can't really go back. And so he comes up with a plan. I'll be a hired hand. And I'll make the money back. His goal here is not repentance. His goal here is trying to save face and make up the money. So he doesn't say, I want to be your son again. Maybe because he does say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he's right. Um, But also because he's trying to make the money back so he can fix the relationship. He thinks the problem is the money, um, which we'll see soon that it's not. So at this point, we have to talk about... Um, what's going on back at home. So his father is sitting there and he's watching. He's watching for his son. We're going to talk about something called the Katsatsa ceremony. It's spelt Q-E-T-S-A-T-S-A, the Katsatsa ceremony. So in Jesus' time, the Jewish community had a way of punishing sons who lost the family inheritance, squandering it among Gentiles. Angry villagers would gather together to conduct what was known as the Katsatsa ceremony, a ritual that consisted of filling a large pot with burned nuts and burned corn and then breaking it in front of the guilty party. As the earthenware pot shattered, the villagers would shout, so-and-so is cut off from his people. That would be the cue for the errant son to get out of town for good. It's essentially being shunned. If the villagers saw the sun coming, they'd be like, get the pot, burn the corn, burn the nuts. Like, we are doing this thing tonight. Like, we have been waiting to show this this kid, this punk, 
um, exactly the error of his ways. Like he's not welcome among us. He's he's dishonored us. Like he's been among Gentiles. I, we don't even think he he is not even worthy to be among our people. Like look at what he did to his father. Like they're they're um, indignant and angry and justifiably so um, for themselves as a community and for the father. But the father has different plans. Something that really struck me in the father's response is that the father is the only one who could restore the relationship with his son. Because the son came, the son left as a son, but he was coming back as a hired servant, according to himself. And according to the rest of the community, he was coming back as a rebellious kid who is about to be rejected and shunned by the entire community. And so the father sees the son coming back as a son. And that really stood out to me. If the son had gone through with his plan of coming back as a hired hand, he would have never had a fully restored relationship with his father. He would have been fed. He would have been clothed. He would have been cared for. He would have been paid. And yet he never would have been seen as a son again because he was in that servant role. So the father is the only one who can restore the relationship with the son. He's the one who gets to define the relationship with his son now. And so what he does is really just a bit of a shock to the rest of the village because he, in a completely undignified manner, runs to meet his son before the son gets to the village and before the villagers can say, you're cut off from us. And so we know in that culture that for a grown man to run, that would have been completely undignified. For a man to show his bare legs in that culture would have been indecent. And so when he runs, of course, his robe is sort of flying around and I'm sure people saw a little flash of his ankles. And so he he makes himself undignified and the shame that the son would have experienced in coming back and being rejected from his people is something that the father actually experiences himself in running to meet his son. And because he runs to meet his son and shames himself in that way, the son comes into the village and experiences no shame. And that was just really significant for me because that's just such a beautiful picture of what the Lord has done for us. I, I was doing some research in advance of this and someone who's like an expert on Middle Eastern culture said that the shock of a grown man, a wealthy grown landowning man running would have been similar to a grown man pulling his pants down in public and like showing his rear end. Like that's the shock and the disgrace um, of the idea. Now he's doing this in order to save his son because he has to, he has to be quick because Everyone who's like watching has been waiting for this. Um, so he has to get out there real quick and like intercept his son before they can. And he does this. Um, it says that he's filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. And then, and then the son starts into his little thing. Cause if you've ever, well, when you probably have a memory of um, failing, sinning in some way, falling short and, you're, you finally get back to talking to God and you have this idea, you're coming to him like shoulders hunched, like head down. You're kind of shuffling a little bit. Like you don't really want to 
talk to him. You know you got to say, um, you know you have to ask for forgiveness. You know you have to confess. You know you have to confess that what you've done is wrong. But you're, you're so ashamed and guilty that you're kind of just like shuffling along there. And you're trying to get out like, oh God, like I did this and I'm sorry. The image we have here is of the father being like, it's okay, I know. You don't have to explain it. Um, like I love you and embracing you and welcoming you back because the son tries to say, father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now this is sincere. He has now seen what his father's done by stopping the Kazatsa ceremony and running and taking that shame upon himself. And this is him completely broken. Like you have to imagine he's in rags and dirty and dusty from travel and his feet are probably bruised and he obviously doesn't have anything on his feet because later his father brings sandals for him like this is a very broken person who until the moment he saw his father coming had pride and and wanted to try to make the money back and he realizes his father's not going to let him and so at this point the father says to his servants quick bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him so we know that wearing royal clothes or wearing important clothes signifies your status in a household or in in a community and so he's saying you're my son again put a ring on his finger now this is similar to a signet ring um, that says you have the authority of the father in business dealings so he's giving him back his financial like land-owning ability and dignity And then it says, and sandals for his feet. Now, only free landowners and like the wealthy, like the upper echelons of society at that time wore sandals. And so he's saying he's back now in my good graces, like he's my son, like we're we're good to go. And, And this is him. And then he says, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. When you kill a fattened calf, you're not gonna save it for the next day. Like you're eating it all in one sitting. Um, And so he's inviting the entire village to come and celebrate. He says, for the son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. So it's important to realize here that, yes, the celebration is for the son returning, but the celebration wouldn't have been possible without what the father did. They're really celebrating the father's lavish, selfless, giving love and an acceptance of the son. That's what the party's about. They're celebrating the father. And then the older son comes home. And he's not very happy. No. (laughs) So we're going to talk now a bit about the older son and his response to everything that's been happening thus far. He comes in from the field and he sees this crowd of people. He sees the music and the dancing. So he says to a servant, hey, what's going on? And the servant tells him that his younger brother has returned And that the father has ordered that the fattened calf be killed in his brother's honor. And his response is one of anger. Verse 28 of chapter 15 says that he was angry and refused to go in. So two issues here. One is his anger. The other is the fact that he refused to go in and join the party that his father was throwing is just flat out rude and disrespectful. But I want to talk for a minute about his anger. So we mentioned earlier that that the celebration is not so much that the son came home. In today's culture, I think we like to make it about the fact that the son came home. It's not about the son coming home. It's about the father's 
reception of the son and his response to his son coming home. That's what the story is about. And so the fact that the older brother gets angry, he's not angry that his brother came home. He's angry with how his father is responding. And so the older brother's sin is against his father, not against his brother. You know, I think a lot of the time we like to look at the story and go, man, like the older brother, like he couldn't even be happy that his younger brother came home. Like, you know, why should he be upset about that? But he was angry with his father for accepting the younger son back. And that was wrong because he is angry at the father's love and mercy. And that's his sin. If he really loved his father, he would have accepted his brother back. And I think that that's something that's really important to remember. If we love our father, then we are going to rejoice when the prodigals in our life return. As I mentioned earlier, it was also very rude that he didn't go into the party and it was actually way more disrespectful for him to not go into the party and then rebuke his father in front of all of the guests and say, why are you treating the younger, my, your younger son this way? He also does not identify the younger son as his brother at this point. So he's not saying my brother, he's saying your son and he's distancing himself and he is refusing to recognize the returning son as his own brother. The older son also has a sense of entitlement. He says, look, I've done everything right and I've never disobeyed you. And the father doesn't disagree with that. He doesn't say, yeah, well, but you did this. Like, he's not denying that. And the son was right to, of course, obey his father and and all of that. But he seems to think that he should be honored based on what he has done right. And the older son seems to have a perspective of entitlement that is based on the work he has done or the things he has done right. And then he believes the younger son should not be given certain privileges because he hasn't done those things right. So there's definitely an attitude of works-based reward, if you will. Um, Another thing is that his older brother, he has—he doesn't even know what's happened to his younger brother while he's been away. All he knows is that his father has received him back um, and is ce- celebrating about it. So he starts to say, oh, he spent his money on prostitutes. He doesn't know that. He's just angry and he's spouting. And you, wa- you wonder what he's been stewing about all this time since his younger brother went away. Like This has been a long time coming. Probably similar attitude to the rest of the community. Um, just like waiting to give him his give him his just reward um and he's so angry this is the the public disrespect and humiliation that he shows to his father is almost worse than what his younger brother did earlier the fact that it's public is is just about it may even be worse than what his younger brother did i think it's interesting that they both sin against their father but at different times So one of them sins, comes back, not necessarily seeking forgiveness, but gets forgiveness anyway. That's grace. He gets something he didn't deserve. The older son sees the grace that is given and is not motivated by it, but is angered by it. He is not spurred on to love his brother 
but rather he is he is spurred towards anger at the father so one of them sins and the result is grace and one of them sins as a result of grace being given to another and then is offered that same grace when the father doesn't slap him across the cheek and send him out for being so disrespectful the father then offers that same forgiveness and acceptance to him and he won't take it he won't accept it the point between the two is that the youngest son accepts it accepts being found yeah that's i agree i think that's the main difference it's said a couple of times that the younger son was dead and he's come back to life. He's been lost and he's been found. If you look at the two parables beforehand, those are phrases that are um, echoed. Is that the thing or the person or the animal that's been lost is found, is dead, comes back to life. And the party is about the person who found them. And, and in the Old Testament, um, in the Psalms, and even in, in like the narrative part of the old testament god's god is appealed to on the basis of his character so abraham says like you won't smite um like lot and the whole city like for the sake of like however many people and he like he he basically appeals to god's character and then Moses is like, you can't destroy these people after bringing them out. Then people will think like blank about you, like you, your characters that you can't. And, and he's still, and God has this character. And so when he is then, um, like they're celebrating God's character, they're celebrating Jesus's character and going out and finding the lost. Like when the shepherd comes back and they have a big party, it's because he did what shepherds do. He he was true to his own character. They're celebrating the fact that he was following and his actions were in line with himself. Same with the woman. Her actions, like she had lost it. She found it. Um, or it, it had been lost. The coin had been lost and she found it. The fact that she had spent the time and found it. The point with the father is that he is acting in tune with his character and everyone celebrates that. God acts in tune with his character, and that is something to be celebrated. Okay, so we're going to talk about the parallels here between what was going on. So remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who in this story, they are represented by the older brother. Um, those in Israel who had who had walked away, or maybe Gentiles, um, the poor, the downtrodden, the outcasts, those who had left those are the prodigal sons and then the father is god um i would say god the father and god the son um looking at the two stories beforehand so in real life they get all angry at this the rabbis and the teachers of the law and the pharisees they get all angry at this and in real life those are the people that put jesus to death so if you take the real life playing out of the story where those are the people that sentenced jesus to die to crucifixion and you put it in this story and you play it out the older son then takes his father out and kills him and it just saying that like puts uh, a really like sick feeling in the pit of my stomach like playing out the end of that story and like we slap god in the face like the younger son and we are unaccepting and judgmental and and rude to people to people who are younger sons that are coming back and and we sin against God and in the face of his sacrifice and righteousness and offer of redemption to us and it, like you can see yourself a lot of people want to see themselves in the place of the younger son of the 
prodigal who's coming home and they want to be in that place where the father is loving them. And I think that's good. Like, I think that happens. That is, that is a true thing that you can put yourself in the place of the younger son. But you also oftentimes are probably in the place of the older son where you have to check yourself. Why are you angry? Why are you upset? Why don't you want to show the love of God to this person? And just be reminded that God did it. God gave forgiveness and acceptance and redemption um, to people and that you have no right to withhold it. here I do want to redefine repentance a little bit. So we look commonly in a story the moment of repentance is when the son comes to his senses and says I'm going to apologize and work and pay it off and this is him trying to fix the problem and the father doesn't even let him because number one he can't because that's a lot of money um, that he's squandered and you're not going to make it back as a hired servant and two the issue wasn't money for the father. The issue was the relationship that was broken. And so now he has allowed himself to be found and he's allowed himself to be forgiven. We have given, we've given a great gift in forgiveness and redemption and repentance is defined as the acceptance of being found. So the sheep is lost and helpless Repentance becomes the act of the shepherd in carrying the sheep back to his home in the village and the sheep's acceptance of that act. Yeah, I think that it is, it's, we view repentance as us coming back to God. He's sitting there, he's always waiting for us, but we have to get there. And this story rather suggests that all we have to do is start moving towards God and he is going to run to cover the rest of the distance. And I think that that's important. It doesn't mean we don't have to make a first step, but it also means that we don't have to get there completely on our own. And I'm, I'm still trying to work out how I understand this whole concept because it seems like the repentance is in the acceptance of God's forgiveness. Like God is the one who does the work in all of these parables. The Jesus or the God figure is the one doing the work to get whatever it is that's lost. And it, it seems like in my head, um, growing up, I had to like get my crap together and then go to God and say, oh, I did this and I'm sorry and this is how I'm going to make it up. But this parable seems to say that God doesn't even really want that from us. Like what he wants, like as soon as he sees us coming, like he's already there and doesn't even, like, he doesn't even let the son finish his apology. He doesn't even, I mean, he accepts his apology, but he doesn't listen to what his solution is and run with it. Like the father already has his own solution, which is to restore the relationship and have him be a son again and put him in the the high position that he was in before, perhaps even more so. Um, so I'm still working out how I fully understand this. And I think it's going to be a lifelong process because it's easy to say it now sitting at a kitchen table with my friend when we're just discussing theology. It is hard when you have sinned and you know it and then you have to actually play this out. It's not like every single time you go to God and confess and ask for forgiveness that you have this like emotional, like physical experience where you imagine God and like you have this vision of him coming down and and playing out this parable like in your own brain, like a vision. Like we don't have that, but we have the evidence of that is what is happening like in, 
I want to say in the spiritual realm, but I kind of want to say in the spiritual realm. And like you just, you have to trust that that's what's happening because he's given you that, um, the reason to believe in that in the word. And then living that out is difficult. And we're still learning because we're young. And I think at the very end of this, I do want to say that um, there are people who have written books upon books upon books upon books on, um, for this sh- this subject and this concept of having Middle Eastern um, and ancient customs and cultures, how they bear on our Bible. Um, and one person who's done a lot of this, his name is Kenneth Bailey. Um, I recently bought one of his books and I'm looking into doing some more research with what he's written. And um, I would highly suggest that he's got like some YouTube videos out there. There's a couple like quick synopsises of his books to read and just be eye-opening for you. Like we're not the experts. I'm We're learning from the experts and sharing what we learn, but we want to make sure that you go to them and, and take what they say um, rather than just take what we say and run with it. We hope that this has sort of whet your appetite a little bit in terms of digging deeper into this story and what it really means. Of course, it has wonderful truth when we just read through it at a surface level, but the more you dig into it, the more profound truth you will find. And so what we'll do is we'll link some resources in this episode description so that you can start somewhere if you want to learn more but aren't really sure where to start. Those will help get you going. So just to sum it all up, this parable deserves a different title that it's known by. Instead of the prodigal son, it's the father, the hero, the loving father, aka the hero of the story and the way he responds to the rebellion of both of his sons and moves toward them in in love and acceptance and grace. So with that, we are going to move into our question of the week. And this week, that is, what is your favorite way to relax? My favorite way to relax, a couple ways, um, going downstairs on the couch, wrapped up in a blanket and watching TV with my mom. We watch Call the Midwife and we went through Downton Abbey again and we watched movies and a couple of my favorite TV shows. Um, We watch a lot of Fixer Rapper because she likes that a lot. And we usually like eat supper, have snacks downstairs too. And it's just, it's just nice. It's nice to be together. Also, I drink tea. How about you? How do you, what do you do to relax? I also like watch TV with, with William as well. Currently we're watching all of the Hogan's Heroes seasons again, but I also like sitting down with a good book. I'll make myself a London Fog and sit down with my favorite book. Um, or I also like listening to sermons on YouTube and I'll, uh, follow along in my Bible. So anything that's sort of something I can just chill out in our living room and, and sort of do and have some snacks, um, is relaxing for me. Well, that was a pretty simple question of the week. Yeah. But well, we talked a lot, so. Yeah. No, that was a cool episode to do. I enjoyed that. Me too. It's, it's a story that's been close to my heart. So with that, we're going to say bye until next time. So if you would like to contact us, you can email us at renewtheology at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Renew Theology Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram at Renew Theology. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, um, we would really appreciate it if you would give us a rating or a review. 
uh, you can just tap the stars to give us a rating or you can actually go ahead and write out a review. We really appreciate those ratings and reviews because um, in addition to being a personal encouragement for us, they other they also help other people find our podcast more easily. So if you have a minute after listening to this podcast, just scroll down and tap the stars and we would really appreciate that. And so we will chat with you next time. Bye.